0: Uh, let me just introduce myself because I haven't done that. My name's Tom and I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be uh, getting back into the Bible book of Exodus. We've come to chapter 19 and we're going to be in 19 and a in, bit in chapter 20 as well, where we see the Ten Commandments, quite a uh, well-known part of the Bible, really, And uh, I think we're going to be surprised by some things that we see uh, today in this scripture. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today. We're going to be in the Bible a lot today, which I make no apology for. You're going to be moving back and forth in your Bible because we really want to go deep into what God's Word uh, has for us. We're going to be asking the question, freedom, what is it for? Now, when you uh, hear politicians uh, in this nation talking about what makes Britain Uh, a great nation, uh, you often hear words like opportunity, diversity, uh, equality, these kinds of words banded about. And probably more than those, you hear the word freedom banded about. We are a free nation, and we we celebrate being a free nation. And we talk of um, helping other nations know freedom. We talk about fighting for freedom in other parts of the world. We talk about freedom from oppression and freedom from slavery. And that is how freedom is Often understood. It's often understood as freedom from something, freedom from oppression or slavery, as I say. But really, that's only half the story. Freedom from some things is only half the story. And that's a truth that is unpacked in today's passages that we're going to read. And it's a major theme of the book of Exodus, it's a major theme of the Bible itself. That it's more than just being free from some things, but free to or freed for. Now, the Hollywood retellings of the story of the Exodus, like the Prince of Egypt and uh, Ridley Scott's Exodus. Uh, they kind of stop at the freedom from bit, okay? In these retellings, the people of God get freed from uh, slavery in Egypt. The bad guys end up getting killed, and the people of God come to the, the foot of Mount Sinai, and then the credits start rolling. Yay, freedom has come! But they don't really have much interest in what happens next. And actually, the Bible has a lot of interest in what happens next, because this is really the key thing. What happens next isn't that interesting to uh, Hollywood or to cinema goers, but it's where really the rest of uh, the Bible starts to unpack for us. Biblically speaking, freedom is not just about being free from some stuff, but being freed to or being freed for some things. Freedom to know God, freedom to know him intimately, freedom to worship him appropriately, freedom to honor him with our lives. Freedom to know life itself. Real, true, satisfying life in God. Freedom to represent God, to point others to him. And here's where we're going to be and what we'll see today and in the weeks to come. God draws his people out of slavery in order to draw them in to deeper relationship with him. He draws them out in order to draw them in. It's freedom from in order to have freedom to. And where we're at today is where we see this uh, dynamic in the book of Exodus. We're going to see how God draws them out of slavery to draw them in deeper. And we're going to see what that means for our freedom. We're going to see what it means for us in our relationship with the, the, the law, the commands that we're going to see. We're going to see what Jesus has to say about these things. And as I say, we're going to be diving deep into the Bible. So God's people have been rescued from slavery. They were oppressed in Egypt. And through many miracles, God brings them out of this oppressive state. And the the, uh, enemies of Israel, the Egyptians, are drowned in the sea. And they've traveled through the wilderness. And as we were reminded by Tommy last week, God provided again and again for his people. Even though they grumbled, even though they complained, even though they lacked trust in him, he provided for them again and again. And now they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, which may be this mountain on the screen, just to kind of give you a little bit of a picture. And it's just as God promised Moses, you will come and meet me at Mount Sinai. And then literally the rest of the book of Exodus is the people of God encamped at Mount Sinai. So let's pick up in Exodus 19. We're just going to read the first six verses. Now on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want you to note this, that God begins in this discourse by reminding Moses of the rescue that he has brought about for the people of Israel. I want you to just note that. He reminds them of their rescue. Even though for them it was only a few weeks before, he reminds them of what he has done. Now, in the recent weeks, as we've gone through this series, we've seen the rescue from the perspective of the people of Israel. We've seen this dramatic scenes. We've seen the plagues that have come upon the Egyptians. We've seen God make a way through the sea. It's been an incredible story, high drama. But what is God's perspective? How does he summarize it? He says, I, I picked you up like an eagle picks up a struggling chick. Put you on my wings. Brought you to myself. It's very tender language. He's got a heart for his people. We're all tender heart. Later in the book of Hosea, through the prophet Hosea, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Isn't that beautiful? There's a a love here, there's a deep love. In God's perspective, it's he's been moved by compassion and deep love. I I, I took you on, on my wings. I brought you to myself. He begins by reminding them of their rescue. This is so important we understand this. More than uh, being brought to a promised land, he's brought them to himself. He's drawn them out in order to draw them in. And then in verse 5, he's hinting to them that there's going to be some things that he's going to ask of them. There's going to be some commands. But these were not fundamentally about rule-keeping, but about loyalty and worship. I brought you to myself, that you might know me. And then in verse 6, he makes it really clear that the purpose of the rescue and the purpose of the commands that he's about to give is relationship. You will be my treasured possession of all the peoples on the earth. You will be my treasured possession and these words in the original language are used elsewhere in the Bible, and they, they speak of a king's private treasure collection. So kings can like lay claim to anything in the land, but they have their own personal collection of treasures. And this is how God sees his people. Mine, my treasured possession. The rescue was not of their own doing at all. There was no way that the Israelites could work their way out of slavery. There's no way that they could work it out themselves. In God's perspective, I whisked you up. I don't know if any of you have ever read The Hobbit. It's a great story. Maybe you've seen the films. There's moments where Bilbo and his friends are in massive trouble, and there's no way that they can get out. They're facing certain death, and suddenly some eagles swoop down and lift them to safety. This is like that for the for the people of God there was no way they could get out of slavery in Egypt god he swooped down and lifted them it was totally his work so before anything else there's a rescue and this is it's really vital that we understand this it's really important that we grasp this because the commands come after the rescue has come the rescue came first and we're going to see god lay out these commands for the people those rules were for their good. It was for the flourishing of their society, yes. It was to enable them to uh, live in right relationship with God, but it was also that they might display to the nations around them the goodness and wisdom of God. If you just remember back, if you've been with us since, uh, just even since the beginning of this year, we spoke about Abraham and the, the mission that God had uh, given Abraham, really, or the promise that he'd given Abraham, that his, his descendants would be more numerous than all of the stars in the sky, the grain of sands, uh, grains of sand on the beach. And he said, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. Your people will be a blessing. This was Israel's mission statement, that they were to uh, display to the nations around them who God is. Now, we're going to read uh, chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments in a minute, but... What we're jumping over is quite a dramatic scene, quite an incredible thing really, where Moses gathers together the people after this uh, talk with God, and the people declare that they will obey God, they will keep his covenant. And so Moses climbs back up the mountain to meet with God, and God hears that the people are willing to obey him, and so God says, okay, get the people ready. Have them consecrate themselves to me. Have them get their hearts ready to meet with me. I'm, I'm going to descend upon this mountain and there's going to be a thick cloud over this mountain. I'm going to speak and I want the people to hear. This is what God says. And there's a dramatic scene that people get themselves ready. And a couple of days later, thunder roars and lightning flashes. And there's a great uh, cloud come upon the mountain And there's a loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. I think you would tremble if you heard this. The mountain itself starts to shake, and God says, don't touch the mountain. Don't have anyone touch the mountain, because you will surely die. It's a dramatic scene. And so Moses leads the people from their camp to the foot of the mountain, and it's like the mountains uh, completely uh, engulfed in flames. That's what it seems like, because there's smoke rising up to the sky. It kind of reminds us a little bit of the time where God meets with Moses, and there's a bush that's on fire, and it's not consumed. It's this dramatic scene. And then God says to, to Moses, bring your brother Aaron up too, and then God gives the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, for so many here are so familiar that I think there's some things that we miss, okay? And I want us to listen in carefully as I read these verses. We're going to read verses 1 to 19 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. lest we die. Dare I say that the Ten Commandments have become a bit familiar? We kind of think, well, it's just ten things that God sort of lays out, says, don't do this, don't do that. What we might have missed, and I think we probably have, is the context of this. Massively missed it. Sometimes in our upbringing, we might have been given kind of a list in a school context or uh, in a kind of children's group context. So, Here's the list. Do this. Don't do that. Or maybe you went to a church building where uh, outside or inside there was a list. Here's the 10 things that God really wants you to know. And the problem with the, well, there's many problems with lists out of context, which we'll unpack. But one of the big ones is that we miss totally the context. Now, we kind of like lists in some ways. We have a kind of strange relationship with lists. (laughs) We kind of like them because we can kind of measure ourselves by them and we can kind of think, I think I'm doing pretty well. And that major problem with that is that it can lead to pride. We can think, "I think I think I've got all this down. I think I'm doing pretty well. I think God must be pleased with me. Now, the opposite is true as well because we will inevitably then at some point... Not obey one of those ten commands. And we'll have despair in our hearts and we'll think, how on earth can I possibly stand before God? How can I possibly be in right relationship with Him because I've broken one of these commands? There's all kinds of problems when this list is just kind of given out of context because we missed the first two verses, which are really, really important. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We need to understand the context here. When we understand the context that it's rescue first before the commands come, it changes everything. God's saying, I rescued you. I completely obliterated your enemy. I made a way where there was no way. You were enslaved and there was no way out. I rescued you, and now I've brought you to me. Now I'm to be your first love. I'm to be your God. Don't have any other gods. I'm to be the object of your devotion and worship. Don't kill those who are made in my image. Trust me for provision. Just as you've seen me provide manna from heaven, Just as you see me provide for your every need, trust me. Go on trusting me. It's different in context, isn't it? It's very different. Obey me. Enjoy my covenant. Enjoy relationship with me that you may be my special treasured possession, shining for all the world to see. You see, rescue preceded the rules. Salvation precedes obedience. He didn't give them the rules back in Egypt. He didn't come to them in their suffering and say, guys, I'm really, really sad to see the state you're in, but I need to know if you're worthy of being rescued. So here's 10 things. Now you've got one year, and if you can do these 10 things, if you can keep them, then I'm going to come and rescue you. That was not the deal. Because if that was the deal, it would have been absolutely hopeless for them. They would have never known freedom. They would have never known rescue from their dire state. It would have been hopeless. No, God says, I saved you. I did it for you. I made a way. Whilst you were enslaved and helpless, I came to you and freed you completely. There's rescue before he lays down any commands. Redemption before obedience. It's made so clear here that the blood of an unblemished lamb was spilt for them in order that they might flee the slavery that they were in in Egypt. A sacrifice had been made. A rescue was accomplished by God alone. Pharaoh was defeated before the law was laid out. And that's the problem with lists put on the walls of church buildings or learnt in school. They either lead to pride or despair. People think, I must do these things in order to have God pleased with me. No, God's purpose has always been about relationship. It's always been about having people know him intimately and being his special treasured possession from among all the peoples on the earth. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This has been in his heart. This is what he's desired. The rescue was not the end game and the rules certainly were not the end game. The rescue And the rules were to bring the Israelites into closer and closer relationship with him, to enjoy right relationship with him, and to display him, to display how glorious he was to the nations around. They were to be a light to the nations around. He drew them out in order to draw them in. You getting this? Now, what happened? How did it go for them? Well, we're going to see in the weeks to come that it didn't go so well. We're going to see that there's a moment we'll cover very soon where the people of God, they stop trusting in him for provision. They they kind of get a bit worried and they end up building a cow out of gold and worshipping it. I mean, we just think to ourselves, how on earth is that possible with them seeing everything they've seen? And yet, if we were really honest with ourselves, we know that sometimes we can be so uh, washed in the good news of all that God has done for us, and celebrate it, and then temptation can come our way, and we can cave to it. We know that, don't we? We can think, how on earth could they do that? Well, sadly, the history of Israel is one of them turning to idols again and again, It's checkered with it. The whole history of Israel is them turning from the living God and turning to false idols, not being the light to the other nations that they were called to be, not demonstrating God to the nations around, but being like them. What is the deal with that? Well, the problem for them is the problem that is the problem for the whole of humanity. Someone once said that the heart Of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We cannot, in our own strength, keep to these commands. We cannot, in our own strength, honour God. No mere human can do that. We cannot do it perfectly. And it's said that in 1910, the Times newspaper ran an article asking people, what is the problem in the world? What is the big problem in the world? And they asked people to write in their answers, and it said that G.K. Chesterton, a quite famous Christian writer, wrote into them saying, Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's the problem. The problem is our hearts. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We fall into sin. And apart from the rescue that Jesus alone provides, we cannot live lives that are pleasing to God. We just keep falling into sin. Now for the Israelites, as we'll see, God had to institute a temporary means by by which their sins could be atoned for. We're going to see and read of the sacrificial system that God gave them. We've heard a little bit about that even this morning. He gave them a way by which their sins could be atoned for, but it was only ever to be a temporary deal. It was an echo of the fact that uh, back in Egypt, a lamb had been slain for their freedom, but it was pointing towards a day where the Lamb of God would be slain, where he would lay down his life once and for all time and offer a perfect sacrifice. That's what that system was pointing towards. This Son of God, the Lamb that was slain, who we know to be Jesus, he came and he had some things to say about these commandments. Now, you might be hoping that Jesus would come into the world and say, yeah, about the commandments, I think that it's fair to say now that we're kind of more chilled about these things. We were, we were a little bit strict back then. We had to lay down some things, but it's okay now. We're much more relaxed. That's kind of what we're hoping Jesus is going to say, right? Because we look at these 10 things, and I think, I've probably done three or four of them today. <laughs> and Jesus comes... And in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to see what he says about the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Yikes. Yikes. Jesus hasn't come to lower the bar. He's not come to say, hey, forget everything that we said in the Old Testament. It's not relevant anymore. He's saying, no, no, it's not going to pass away. That's hard for us to hear, right? Maybe you think to yourself, I'm a a pretty good person. I'm basically a good person. I think lots of people today think that they are basically good people. I recycle, (laughs) I pay my taxes. (laughs) I'm trying to be good for the planet. I I, I try to live and let live. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered, you might say. What does Jesus say about those things? Because it doesn't get much better, okay? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the bar's being raised. It's not murder, but it's those that murder in their hearts. What about adultery? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's no longer about going to bed with someone. It's about what we're thinking in our minds about going to bed with someone. Jesus doesn't lower the bar, friends. He raises it a lot higher. How can we stand? What hope is there for us? Well, praise him. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it in full. And you know, there's not just 10 commandments here, there's over 600 in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Only one person who's ever lived has done that. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Never, never once entertained a lustful thought in his mind. Never once was angry to the point of sin. He got angry. But it was never to the point of sin. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Think of the ways in which you're tempted. He was tempted in those ways. But he didn't go there, he resisted. Jesus fulfilled the law. And therefore, this is really, really good news he made the perfect sacrifice. He was the unblemished lamb who made the perfect sacrifice for our sins. When he died on the cross, he was the only one who could do that because he was perfect in every way. And the Bible makes it very clear that on the cross, he took our, the, the, the just uh, anger of God upon himself. The just anger of God towards our sin upon himself. He took our sin and our shame upon himself. And therefore, it's now by faith in him. It's by faith in what he's done that we are saved. It's by faith in what he's done that we are made right with God. This was the richly treasured theology of the early church fathers, of the apostles, of Peter and of Paul and others. They treasured this really deeply. If you don't believe me, let's go there now. In 1 Peter 3 verse 8, this is what Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, has to say. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ, Jesus, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered in our place, that he might bring us to God. That's Peter. And then you've got Paul in Romans chapter 10, where he says this in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I could have shared many, many, many verses along those lines. But they had this conviction and deeply treasured, theology that it's faith in Jesus alone that makes us right with God. Faith in the one who made the perfect sacrifice. Faith in the one that never erred, who never put a foot wrong. And it's by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, that we are saved. So there's all kinds of trouble with kind of just having this list of thinking, well, am I I measuring up? Uh, You know, am I doing what is right? Because we all fail. And pride and despair are kind of Two sides of the same coin. We put our trust in our works, it leads to pride or at least to despair. We've got to put our trust in Jesus. We cannot work our way into right standing with God. All those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior have been rescued. Rescued from their sin, rescued from the consequence eternally of their sin, rescued from fear of death. Rescued to glorious, intimate, deep relationship with our maker. Rescued to know him as our father, this mighty one, to know him deeply. He's got a desire, friends, that this family goes global. And it already has to a large degree. He's got a desire that this family of people who know him, who treasure him, who see him for who he is, know him the world over. This is God's heart, that he would have a people. This is a plan for worldwide redemption, that a people who would know him all across the earth, just as the waters cover the sea. This is God's heart. And this is how Peter, who grew up as a devout Jew, puts it. In the chapter before, speaking to mostly Gentile believers, okay? The people who have not grown up with a Jewish background. He was writing to Jews and Gentiles, but most scholars agree that he was writing mostly to Gentile believers. People not with a Jewish background. This is what he says in 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 10. This is profound. He says this, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you understand what's going on there? He's using the same words that God speaks over his people Israel to now speak of those who are in Christ, Jews and Gentiles who've placed their faith in Jesus. He's saying, now you are God's people. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You're called now to proclaim the excellencies of him who's brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is who we are friends that is who we are we're called we've been taken out of darkness and into his glorious light we once not we didn't know his mercy but now we know his mercy and this is who we are this is who we are friends this is amazing news <laughs> we 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 had no right we had no kind of uh, right to be part of this but God has made a way by sending his son That all who now believe, people from a Jewish background or not a Jewish background, all who believe in Jesus the Messiah are the people of God. This is glorious. And there's a language of delight and tenderness that God speaks over us. You're my special treasured possession. You see, in, this, in the West, right, we have this narrative, somehow, I don't, can't get my head around it, but that we come from insignificance, okay, that we're all an accident, and we're going to insignificance, nothingness, and somehow we're supposed to live a significant life. Do you, it doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet we, the people of God, have been called God's special treasured possession. We get drawn, he, he, he delights in us, he, he sings over us. says, you're mine and I'm yours. That that leads me to live a significant life. Does it not? Because I I belong to the one who made me. And I now get to declare his excellencies because he's called me out of darkness into his glorious light. (laughs) So how is this life lived? Well, it's lived not being like the world. It's to look different. How is it to be lived? Is it going back to the law? Is it going back to the Old Testament saying, I've got to try and measure up to these things. I've got to try and see if I'm kind of keeping up with all these various laws. No. We as Christians are no longer under the law. Now, that might sound heretical to you, but I want to show you this to be true. Again, I could show you many different passages, but I want to show you Romans chapter 7 in particular. Now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul has been talking uh, at length Before this, about God's rescue of us in Christ. And then he gives this unusual analogy, this unusual picture of our relationship with the law. He says that we, before coming to know Christ, we were married to the law. Okay, We were under its authority, and the law was always right, like an annoying husband or an annoying wife, as it were. Always right, and always pointing out our faults always showing us that we were not measuring up. But it wasn't wrong. There was nothing wrong about the law. It was good. But actually, it wasn't lifting a finger to help us. And we were married to this husband, the law, for life. There was no remarrying another because that would be adultery. We're married. We're stuck with this husband for life. That's the analogy. You can read it for yourself. What has changed for us, Paul says, is that we have died he says of the law, the law's not going to die. It's not going to go away. It's not going to just suddenly, Jesus is going to say, right, cancel all that now. No, no, it's not going to die. But we have died. That's, a, that's an intriguing thing. One of the things we celebrate when we celebrate baptism, we celebrate, I've died. My old life is gone. The new has come. And we've died. When Jesus died, we through faith, we died with him. Our old life has gone. We died to the law. That we might marry another, that is Jesus. That we may be joined to another, that is Jesus. If you want to read this for yourselves, read Romans chapter seven in a bit more depth. This is why Paul writes in verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died, so that which held us cap- having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way, the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So we're no longer living our lives thinking, I've got to try and and obey all of these commands. I've got to really try really hard. No, no. God's made a new way now of us living a life that pleases him, a life walking in step with the Holy Spirit. He's put his Holy Spirit within us. God himself has come to live within us, to dwell within us. And we've got a new way to please him, a new way of living this life with the Holy Spirit living within us. Walking day by day in step with the Holy Spirit. We live for God now, not by kind of checking ourselves against the written code, but we declare his excellencies in a new way. The way of the Spirit. Listen, the law was good. And surely if everyone lived according to the Ten Commandments, society would be pretty good. People not coveting other people's things. Not murdering others, keeping truthful testimony it would be good, right? It would be a good society. But the Bible makes it clear that no mere human can fulfill the law, and it's powerless to produce in us the kind of life that God wants for us. Therefore, those who are in Christ are not under the law, but under grace. We live a new life by the Spirit now. There's a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. That's what we celebrate every time we have bread and wine. Every time we have communion, we're celebrating a new covenant. It means a new way of relating to God. A way in which God has brought us near by the blood of Jesus. That our sins have been washed clean. That we've been rescued through no work of our own. That's what we're celebrating when we take the bread and the wine and now we're brought into relationship with God and the Holy Spirit, God himself living within us, changing us day by day from one degree of glory to the next. Sometimes it feels like slow progress, but God is about a work in us, all those who belong to him. He's about a work in our hearts. He's changing us, renewing us. The Holy Spirit is bringing about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives of goodness and peace, and patience, and kindness, and love, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. These things are being born in us as we sow to the Spirit, as we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. What's our role? It's simply to enjoy Him, to enjoy relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Simply to walk with Him daily. We'll get things wrong. We need to come to Him Receive his forgiveness. Turn away from things that he's highlighted to us. Repent. That's what it means to turn away. I'm, saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn to you, Lord. Trust that you've got better for me. But that's the way in which we now live this life. The fruit of the Spirit grows within us as we walk with him, walking in step with the Spirit. You can read all of that in Galatians chapter 5. We walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We sow to the Spirit, okay, when you sow seeds, you're sowing in expectation that a few weeks later you're going to start to see some stuff. So when we sow to the Holy Spirit, it says in Galatians, "We will not gratify the desires of our flesh. So what is it that we might do to sow to the Holy Spirit? <laughs> what things might we proactively do to say, "I'm going to do this because I believe in good time, good stuff's going to come up in my life." I' get into God's word. I'm going to get before him in prayer. I'm going to put this away in my life. It doesn't belong to this new life that I lead now. i want to sow to the Spirit. Listen, we can sow to the flesh, which means that we kind of just sow to the appetites of our old sinful nature. God wants us to live a new life now. Where we walk in step with the Spirit. He will do the changing work. He'll help us to live a life that pleases Him. Should we stand together? I want to pray for us. We're going to sing in response. We've covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> I want you to go and read these verses for yourselves. I want you to read those first 10 verses or so of Romans 7. I want you to read what Jesus says about the law. I want you to read what Peter says about our salvation. I want you to, to, to go deeper into these things. Because as we do it, I think we're going to just revel more and more in his grace to us. We can't. There's no way we can measure up, friends. <laughs> but he has made a way, one measured up on our behalf, Jesus Christ, and now we live with his spirit within us. Should we pray together? Let's just engage with God where we are. What do you need to say to him? What is it that you, what is it that God's just put his finger on? What is it that he's reminded you of? What is it that you need to thank him for? Let's just, just wait before him for a moment. Father, we recognize that you are holy. You are totally other. You are glorious, majestic, and rightly to be revered. And we thank you, Father, that you are perfect in all your ways. And Lord, we recognize that we are not. We humbly just... Acknowledge right now, we are not perfect. (laughs) We're far from it. And Lord Jesus, you are in every way perfect. And Lord Jesus, you in every way obeyed your Father. And Lord Jesus, you laid down your life for us on the cross. Your blood was spilt for us. Your body was broken for us so that we could know forgiveness totally for all that we have ever done wrong. And you rose again, Lord Jesus. And we get to enjoy this new covenant. We get to enjoy this new way of life. This walk with you, Lord. Thank you that we get to walk with you. Made right by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that this new covenant is in every way better than the old. In every way. Lord, you've made a way. And we now, Lord, as your people together, we say we want to declare your excellencies, Lord, to those around us. We want it to be said from those that see our lives. What is different about you? That we might have an opportunity to declare your excellencies, Lord. We want our lives, as we sung already this morning, we want our lives to be a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing to you in view of your mercy, in view of what you've done. Lord, we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. You did it all. And we want to now, in view of that, we want to lay our lives down as living sacrifices. We want to declare how excellent you are, Lord. We want others to know it. We want others to see it. We want others to come and revel in your great grace. We want to worship you with our lives, Lord. God's people together said, Amen. Amen.